Hey guys, welcome to Maceway. Glad you're here tonight, and uh, I want you to grab a seat. There's good eats over there if you haven't grabbed a snack, and uh, I think the coffee's brewing or working on it or something. So uh, grab something to drink and uh, come sit down. We're going to work on our call together, which is an old Irish traditional uh, called How Can I Keep From Singing? Dale and I will do this first verse and uh, get you going and uh, join in or listen and then join when you get it. My life flows on in endless song Above earth's lamentation I hear the real though far off him Hails a new creation through all the tumult and the strife. Well, I hear its music ringing, its sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from Tempest loudly roars Hear the truth it liveth What though the darkness round me close Songs in the night give No storm can shake my end while to that rock I'm clinging Since love is Lord of heaven and earth How can I keep from singing? So if you just get uh, getting the hang of this song this song is a lot like Canical of the Turning or uh, Mary's Song, and it's just a different Irish version of it. And so as we move into Advent in a couple months, we'll do that version, but uh, join us from the first verse as we uh, sing this version. My life flows on. My life flows on in endless song. Above earth's lamentation I hear the real though far off him That hails a new creation Through all the tumult and the strife Well I hear it music ringing sounds an echo in my soul how can I keep from seeing what through the tempest loudly roars I hear 
starting this week anybody oh, oh look at all those all i saw were hands like this i see anybody was like yeah school all right so if you're new to us at emmaus way or you just don't know me i'm sarah one of the many sarahs here um emmaus way is a church community that serves durham and we hope the rest of the world through what we do here in durham um if you're new with us, we want to especially welcome you. This is a great time for visitors, so 
If y'all are sitting next to somebody new, make sure you say hi. And if you are new and you decide you absolutely love us and you can't stand us to get enough of us, there's a yellow card out there that you can fill out or you can just talk to one of us and um, we can put you in contact with one of our awesome people here on staff. Um, so, not only do we this, do this awesome thing on Sunday nights, we also have a lot of things during the week. So Dan Rhodes, this lovely man over here, does a pub group on Thursday nights. Um, we've got a whole bunch of small groups that Miss Elizabeth Eford um, takes care of. So if you're interested in meeting with some smaller groups during the week, she's a perfect person to talk to. Um, next week is Labor Day weekend, so if, right. So if you are just starting school this week, you get one day off next week, which is pretty cool. So one week from tonight, we're gonna have our normal meeting in here, but then we get to go over to the Jakes. I know I saw Susan. There's Miss Susan, over to her place, which is over on Watt Street, and we're gonna have an awesome potluck. So I think we're gonna have a sign up for that this week. Um, so you get to sign up for what delicious dish you're going to bring. And if you don't bring anything, come on over anyway, because there's always lots of food. Oh, we have to thank um, our people who set up our space tonight, which is Joel and Emily. I know they're here, but I can't see them. There they are. So Joel and Emily set up this space with the help of our, um, our friend Kenny, who comes in early. They also made these awesome snacks back here, so everybody should check those out. Um, if you can help out Joel and Emily and all of us when you're done um, hanging out and talking and at the communion table, if you can come back and stack the red chairs. There's a cart for the blue chairs. Um, you can stack those all in one cart, and the red chairs go five in a stack, so it won't be, it'll be really fast. Joel and Emily can get out of here and finish eating their yummy snacks. Also, if you're new and you've got some little ones that you want to send back with the kids, um, our normal teachers and um, the Brogans are back with our kids tonight. So feel free to go right through those stairs and visit them. We have got a cool new way to donate to Emmaus Way on Clover sites that Miss Amy's going to talk to us about. So if any of you way to donate online was through PayPal. Now Clover, our uh, hosting website, uh, Clover, has set up a new way to donate online. And it still takes a percentage um, off the top. So your best bet, if you don't want any money taken off, is always to write a check or do a bank draft. But this um, is significantly less of a percent. So PayPal always takes 3%. So that means 3% less dollars going through my way. Um, so this way is a lot easier, um, a lot more streamlined, and it only takes 1% to 2%. So if you would like to donate to a Mace way, there are several ways to do that. Like I said, we're probably going to draw PayPal in the next couple months and use Clover donations only. Um, but we also have some wiggle out in front of you. Uh, this is your place that you call home. Um, or if you'd like to support what we're doing here at Mace way, we would love to. Thanks to Clover for making it a little bit easier for us. Um, and thanks to everybody who gives your time and thanks. Thanks, Amy. So Wade is going to serenade us now on some awesome songs. I know he would love for you to sing along. Isn't that right, Wade? Unless that's, you're me. That's oh, true. Man. Come on, Sarah. I've heard you sing, and you're the one bad-mouthing your singing. 
Um, you know, one thing, too, thanks for mentioning Kenny. Kenny was uh, here and did a, a lot of great work again setting up. He's really um, gotten the setup down, and um, he uh, had a chance to work with our friend Robert Bailey. Robert's trying to sell his house, so he's under a bit of a deadline. That's why he's not joining us today. But uh, Kenny worked with Robert all day yesterday uh, doing cleanup and stuff like that, and uh, Kenny just wanted me to remind you guys that he is available for... Um, odd jobs around the house, stuff in the yard, um, moving things. He's strong and uh, really loves to help, so keep him in mind if you need someone to do that kind of thing. Um, we're going to move into our songs of preparation tonight as we continue this conversation about uh, relationality and family and community and missionality. And um, one of the things that's um, interesting about some of the songs that we try to use in this slot as preparation is that we try to reclaim songs that have either been missed or songs that have been um, ha- had a certain way of speaking that was kind of culturally run over. And I think Tim had mentioned uh, the song Pink Houses, and I think it actually has a, a similar message to what we did last week with uh, 41 Lawnmowers, sort of this idea of an America that's both insulated and where there are stories that we don't know each other's stories. We oftentimes don't even know the pain that's going on right around us or the difficulty, and yet it sort of gets swallowed up in this, hey, ain't that America, you know, play ball kind of idea. And we've talked about this idea with Born in the USA uh, as well. And so uh, that's one of the reasons we're going to use this song tonight is to try to reclaim some of these images of how we relate to each other. Um, And then with Jan Arden's song, Saved, um, Jan is using Saved, I think, in in a little bit different way than we might have heard it in certain church circles. But I think really there's a similar message of saying that in the midst of our relating to each other, that we get to be Christ to each other, that we get to be the the relationship of God to each other in the world in a lot of very tangible ways, and that there's salvation there. So um, hopefully you can hear these songs that way, and uh, as some of you know them, sing along. Um, And uh, if you just want to listen, certainly feel free. There's a black cat and a black man Living in a black neighborhood He's got an interstate running through his front yard You know he thinks he's got it so good Yeah, there's a woman in the kitchen Cleaning up the evening slob And he looks at her and he says Hey darling, remember when you could stop a clock Oh, but ain't that America, you and me Ain't that America, something to see, baby Ain't that America, home of the free Little pink houses for you and me Like everything else, those old crazy dreams, they just kind of came and went. Well, 
What do they know, no, no Gonna work in some high-rising vacation Down at the Gulf of Mexico And there's winners, there's losers They ain't no big deal Because the simple man pays for the thrills The bills and the pills that kill But ain't that America You and me, baby, ain't that America Something to see
That I did Have torn them into tiny bits of rain Oh, the sun has dried those memories Like I knew it would Oh, I am Actually, John Cougar Mellencamp has what I think was my favorite titled record of all time, The Lonesome Jubilee. Actually, that song wasn't on it. I thought it was. But, uh, what a, you know, we talked about this last night of Jesus coming and proclaiming this jubilee, this radical change in society. And that, that, uh, that record is about how that jubilee is very, very, very lonesome. And I think when Mary sung about it, uh, when she uh, w- uh, found that she was pregnant, it was a very lonely concept at that point in time. And one of the things we like to do with our music is to help us kind of sit in an idea fairly long and a concept that's sometimes too easily made abstract. And today, a couple of things we've been doing is this idea that um, we're, we're going to look at the idea of Jesus's new relationality, what this new salvation kind of coming in the, the season of the Messiah, so to speak. And, um, and I think that that song, Pink Houses, kind of at least deconstructs some of the things that we kind of attach to the notion of salvation. How many times have we looked at um, affluence or good things in our life and said, these are the blessings of God. And, and in some ways, uh, uh, the world doesn't really, really work that way. And one of the things I like about that song, Saved, is the, um, I think Stephen Colbert would might put it this way, it puts this idea of God's intervention in a lifiness rather than some sort of change of status, a, a whole lived and breathed kind of way. So, Wade, thank you and Dale for kind of putting us there with those thoughts. Hey, this is typically where we give each other a chance to stand up and offer each other the peace of Christ, or if you're with somebody that you don't know sitting beside you, whatever, introduce yourself. It's a good chance to grab brownies and coffee or whatever, and I'll give us a shout in about two minutes, and we will jump into the dialogue. So please offer each other the peace of Christ. Some serious snacks over there. What are those things, Josh? Brownies or with... Oh, my goodness. 
Amanda's throwing the gauntlet down on cheddar beer. Whoever brought those is to be blessed. Uh, in fact, we may go Catholic and transubstantiate those later tonight as, uh, as kind of part of the communion table. So, uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> so tonight is going to be a little bit of a weird dialogue in the sense that I'm going to do a little talking and then I'm going to throw it to you full force at the end. So a little bit different. If you're new with us, one of the things that we like to do at Emmaus Way is we understand ourselves as um, a, a group of people that's part of God's redemptive work in this community, meaning we're not inventing it. We're looking for the marks of what God is doing and, and what is happening redemptively around us. And, and one of the ways that we do that is that we gather and we hear each other's voices. We hear each other's experiences um, for any given week, you might come and step into this space uh, brokenhearted or frustrated, or uh, many of you are in helping professions where you are, you know, kind of nose to the ground with what's wrong in the world that we live in. Uh, but we have the opportunity to hear each other's voices and hear things that have changed, things that are happening, uh, which is powerful for us. And one of the ways that we do that is we interpret text together. We understand that my role is not the expert who has looked at a Bible passage that you have no idea what is all week long, and I tell you what it means, but we gather around it every week, and we uh, kind of take that sacred text, an inspired text, and, and we interpret it not just in an abstraction, meaning, you know, I think this means this, but in an embodied reality, this means us, this for, for our community and our lives. So that's kind of what we do every week. Um, let me read to you uh, some very familiar words. You'll know what this is without any introduction. Um, and so, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day the nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Now that biblical quote is a big one, isn't it? I mean, valleys raised, mountains laid low. This isn't kind of God kind of coming in the world and massaging a few things. Uh, this is an utterly changed world based on the intervention of God. And what Martin Luther King, um, the Reverend Doctor, is talking about there is the portrait of a new politic. 
in the world that we live in, a new economy where people relate to each other, where power is exchanged, where relationships are changed, a new configuration of relationships uh, regarding how race had been defined in our society. I actually read the full text of that uh, this morning, uh, and it just gave me chills, which incidentally, where the 49th anniversary of that speech is on Tuesday. Uh, so still a powerful, powerful speech. Now, even the, 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 the one who knows the least history in our, our culture knows that that sentiment that uh, the Reverend Doctor was talking about there was part of what got him killed. A vision that was so profound and so transformative was certainly going to invoke threat. People that saw their way of life or their way of thinking deeply disturbed by what he was talking about. And as in so many cases, threat turns to violence. Now, the Reverend Dr. King was not inventing a sentiment. He was not creating a new tradition with his words. He was actually speaking inside of a long and old tradition. The full text of this speech not only quotes the governor of Alabama and the Constitution, but it quotes the prophets of the Old Testament, the same prophets that proclaim the coming of Jesus. And though with probably much smaller numbers and in a much less austere location than the Lincoln Memorial, Jesus made similar emancipatory and threatening proclamations. And in his case, his vision for a new society, a new world, a new way of relating uh, yielded his being executed, in his case, by the state with the consent of most of the people who knew him or heard of him or had at least heard of his name. Um, and taking our, thinking a little bit about what was Jesus proclaiming? What was this kind of radical new vision for the world that in some ways got him killed, just like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King? Um, let's look at, uh, flip to your back there, and we're going to look at two familiar texts because we looked at them last week. I want to look at them again this week. This is uh, Matthew 12. Let me just read this briefly. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. Great, mom, I can't, I'm so excited about seeing them. No, he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, that was a sharp statement. And I'm sure that in the very family-oriented culture that Jesus lived in, when he said that, People were aghast. It was like he dropped an F-bomb right there in the middle of the sermon. People weren't expecting to hear that right there. And, uh, and interestingly, Matthew writes that moment in a way that he wants us to get that this was a dramatic moment. He buries this story into a couple of things where Jesus declares that I am the Lord of the Sabbath, another dramatic statement reorienting the way that the people that he lived with saw the world, um, and then follows a story about Jesus declaring himself as the chosen one. And interestingly, we get a little diatribe right after that where the people who've heard him, and they're hearing him well, I'm the Lord 
Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the chosen one. Who are my mother? Who is my brothers? But the ones who do the will of God. They got into a big conversation about, is Jesus Satan? Is Satan Jesus? Uh, and, and it was a, a lively conversation because who spoke like that? And then finally... Jesus gives this dramatic story about the sign of Jonah, meaning the coming of a person who means that the world is going to change dramatically. So Matthew, writing this story, wants us to get that Jesus was initiating something that was dramatically different. He is changing the way people relate. He's taking the most sacred and inviolate institution of his society, the family, and saying... It doesn't work anymore that way since I have come. Now look at the next little passage. Uh, This is John 19. This is skipping ahead to the cross, and Jesus is at almost his last breath. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, uh, presumably John, Standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here's your son. And to his disciple, he said, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. After this, and this is a big deal in John's gospel, aware that all was now finished in order to bring the scriptures to its complete fulfillment. So here's another interesting moment where Jesus is bypassing the way families worked, the legal obligation that one had from brother to brother to, this is a culture where if one brother dies, the next brother presumably would marry his spouse. This is a culture where taking care of family and particularly a widow would have been a deeply religious conviction. And Jesus is reorienting this. He is stating a preference for a disciple who in the early Christian tradition would represent the church and the kind of the new family, these people of God followers that came after the wake of Jesus' resurrection. The early church understood John as a symbol of this new family that was being formed. And if you're interested in this text, I mentioned this last week, look at John chapter 2. The wedding at Cana where he turns water into wine and uh, John 16 and, and Genesis 3 because this text is highly related to those instances in the Bible. In other words, this isn't just about a son taking care of his bereaved mother. Something is radically changing here. Jesus has taken an older social order and he's replacing it with a new one. In fact, in this case, Mary is being set up as a new Eve. She is in some ways giving birth uh, to a new people and particularly for our purposes in this series, uh, a new salvation, a new relationality, something that is different about how people relate to each other in the age of the Messiah, which is the age that we live. In In fact, this is a birthing metaphor. The cross for Mary and John is the birth pangs of this new spirit, this new salvation born into the world. Now, I realize I showed none of my math in making that point. Uh, It's a point I made last week. And I'd love for you, if you didn't get a chance, listen to the podcast on that or, or catch me afterwards. I didn't want to be overly redundant and ask me, you know, why is this such a dramatic 
moment. Um, but for our purposes tonight, what I want us to hold on to is that Jesus is talking about the world we live in. When he is sitting there saying, this is your son, this is your mother, I'm changing things dramatically, I'm forming a new people, he's talking about the world that we live in. And as we kind of work our way through this series on relationality, on family, on, on missionality, and how mission uh, relates to how we relate to each other, um, one of the things that I hope that you will get from this is that there's an unbelievable message of hope and emancipation in this new thing that Jesus is setting up. Now, next week, for example, I'll give you a little preview. One of the things I want to take is a step back and talk about kind of narratives of origin and families of origin, an opportunity for us to kind of talk a little bit about where we've come from. Because any time you're talking about relationship, whether you're married or single, whether you've got uh, kids, whether you are, have lived here all your life, whether you have one uncle and one cousin or hundreds of cousins, we all have a story. We all come from that. So when we're talking about the relationality of Jesus, we never come to that cleanly. You're always thinking, as well you should be, about where you come from, the, the relationships that you bring into this. So next week we'll, we'll spend a little time talking about those narratives, and I'll try to think of some fun way to do that. Uh, and one of the privileges I have, I think I've done premarital counseling with about half the room here, so I have heard a lot of your great stories, and they're really, really, really good ones. Uh, but I understand that we don't come to this cleanly, but the point that I want us to take from this is the realization that Jesus is setting up something new that he imagines is tremendously hopeful and emancipatory for us. Now, last week, we, we kind of started into this, and so thanks to Wade, I sat in on the podcast again, and, which I don't like doing, but, but, uh, but I listened to us talk about this again, and I actually had some, some observations that this, talking about relationality, is a really, really difficult subject. Not only is it personal, but it's hard to find a way into the conversation. And, and I would say that people, especially people who've come up in kind of faith-based, church, Christian, or you know, these type of organizations, we have been trained to do a variety of things when we talk about relationality. One of the things I think we've been trained to do is to spiritualize it. So we're talking about relationships in the scriptures, and we think this most assuredly is talking about something spiritual. A personal relationship with God, uh, intimacy with God, which is, is important, but we tend to have this reaction that that's got to be what this is really about, is about intimacy with God. One of the first times I met Dan, I've told this story before, uh, we were listening to a sermon being preached about uh, the rich young ruler, and the person who preached the sermon said, well, surely when that person came up and Jesus said, sell all of your possessions, he didn't mean sell your possessions. Possessions. This was a metaphor. This was blessed for the, of the cheesemakers. This was, you know, uh, this was a metaphor for getting close to God, so to speak. And Dan and I both kind of came out of that going, fuming, like, no, he might have meant sell everything that you've got. There might have been a material, a physical meaning behind Jesus's words. But I think that's one of our temptations: is we read Jesus's words, we read the text, and we have this tendency to think that it's only talking about some sort of 
spiritual reality rather than a social lived and embodied reality. And certainly the text gives us a little clue here that says that John took it seriously and Mary took it seriously and it changed their, their arrangement. I think we're also trained in some ways to moralize statements. We read these descriptions of something coming in the Bible, something new, and our reaction is, is it good or is it bad? What's the moral of the story? Uh, Like last week, it was kind of tricky. I was showing you pictures of things that have changed our social life. And it was funny, when I put up the picture of birth control pills, I almost could see half the room going... I'm on the pill. Should I not be on the pill? Or should we talk about this? Or how has this changed something? Or, you know, is it good? Is it good? Yeah, it's kind of, kind of, kind of good. No, it's bad. You know, it was like there was this impulse that we needed to moralize really quickly. When in reality, we could have just said, wow, this technology has changed a lot of things. It's changed maybe the possibility of childbirth and relationships. It, it means that sex and family aren't always the same thing. It means that that poverty isn't always feminized. It means that we might be more libertine. There's a million different things that change based on kind of that technological change. So in some ways, we're trained to read passages like this and and either spiritualize them, spiritual reality, or moralize them. Is it good or is it bad? I think the other thing that we're trained sometimes to do is to resist. We hear these collective portraits of how life might be together. And one reaction is, hey, don't talk to me about how I'm going to live around other people. And it might be, don't talk to me about how I'm going to live with God or how I'm going to live with the person next to me. That's up to me entirely. Um, And it's interesting. If, and you know, not every fits in these categories, but if you come from a conservative theological heritage, you've probably been more trained to spiritualize and moralize, which, by the way, is a highly individualistic way of of reading the Bible. It's kind of saying, what does this have to say about my relationship with God? Um, Is this a change to my understanding of faith? Um, Something new relationally, sometimes from that impulse, can be a threat. Uh, There may be the idea of saying, hey, we've got to get back to the 1950s, or the Puritan era, or the Protestant Reformation, or the first century church, or the ancient Israel, where they really got faith right. So if you come from a conservative background, that's probably one of your arguments. It's one of your impulses is to say, how can I spiritualize this, or or how can I moralize it? Is it a good thing that's being talked about? Now, if you come from a liberal theological heritage or social heritage, you might be quick to be the one who wants to resist. And by the way, this is a very strong form of individualism. It's saying, no one tells me how to live. Life is constructed by me. I live in moral autonomy. I construct my life and I construct my relationships. I am the master of my fate, so to speak. But we have a dilemma when we read passages like this. The big dilemma is Jesus. He's problematic. Jesus was not trained in post-industrial, modern, democratic individualism. He knows nothing of those things. Um, And interestingly, Jesus was probably killed by the religious conservatives of his day. Uh, Those who spiritualized and moralized tended to find what he had to say as very, very lacking. So here's our challenge. We've got to take 
these radical words of Jesus. Words that Matthew is saying to us, I'm going to write every radical story that I have at my wherewithal around this story so that you get the idea that Jesus isn't just kind of making a funny, rude comment about his family. Jesus is changing something dramatically. And this story that, that as, as is written by John's gospel, this last breath, last testament, last dramatic saying, Jesus has got two lines left into him before the movie ends, and this is one of the things that he says. And so we've got to take this dramatic thing that Jesus is proclaiming, and the scriptures want us to see as dramatic, and figure out what does it mean for our modern or postmodern or post-industrial or post-9-11 or information or media-saturated world because it's a challenge, right? The world that we live in is dramatically different than the one that Jesus is describing. But we have to take these words on relationality and, and make them live for us. So here's kind of our marching orders. This is how I want us to jump on this the next several weeks. I think that this is going to take some collective interpretation. This is where I would be really nervous about my saying to you, this, I think, is exactly how it works. Because guess what? I am a white guy, older than 50, grew up in the rural south, a recovering Southern Baptist, a uh, geeketized doctoral student, uh, went to a seminary to a specific place. I have specific experiences that prejudice the way I might think the new relationality. Heck, I might be thinking about all the girls who ditched me in high school and saying, that's what this text is about. They will burn. No. Um, the, uh, but, so I bring experiences to this. But the power is that we all bring experiences to this, and they're different experiences. So that's an invitation. We're going to have to interpret this relationality as a group with the realization, I don't want this to be an abstraction. Butterflies are pretty. Uh, instead, the reality is that I want this to be a lived reality for us. Uh, something that matters. And several of you have grabbed me as I've started this series and said, the things that we're going to talk about here really, really matter because I, we, some of us are making decisions based on what we imagine that Jesus is imagining. Um, so we're going to have to interpret together. We're also going to have to imagine together. I know that sometimes that word is anathema related to the scriptures, but I would say that so much of it, as we saw this summer, is written in poetry and in verse and creative words and in songs that asks us to imagine, to envision, to see little pink houses and say, Who is that? whose dream is that? Whose reality is that? Um, so I'm going to invite you to imagine for this. And also when we talk about relationality, um, this is going to involve some risk. I don't think Jesus' vision for a changed and radically... First of all, it didn't work out so well for him. I think the people he said it to understood it well enough to say, this guy might need to be gotten rid of. Um, but what Jesus is, is painting is a portrait of hope that isn't one that kind of says, eh, 
I'll make a few little changes and this will really matter. So this is an invitation over the next three or four weeks that we're going to think about what does this say to us relationally, politically, socially, the decisions that we have, the expectations we have, the hopes that we have, because hopes are a powerful and a dangerous thing. So you are invited to jump into this. Now, in this invitation, let's think about just a little bit of how our culture has changed. I'm going to send a few pages by, and you just look at these. I, this, this is a portrait of, uh, I told the Thomases they were really disappointed they didn't win this. Um, when did you guys get married? Oh my gosh, we just celebrated our 30th anniversary a couple of days. So 1982 or something like that. Woohoo! So you are not eligible for the Methodist 1958 Family of the Year. But you might have had a good running on this, but this is, this is just some photos from a, a spread in a magazine called Together about the 1958 Family of the Year. And I'm going to just start, there, there are kind of four of them. Would somebody help me pass these around? That'd be great. Josh, and just send them in different directions and pass them. But notice that um, this spread is incredibly stereotypical. It's a family of five that won. He's an upper middle class aerospace engineer. Uh, they have three kids. The oldest son is a star swimmer, uh, and he uh, the, the the husband works out his his moral code in the workplace. Uh, but occasionally he puts on his chef's hat and relieves his wife of the burden of cooking. And you know it's a very very simplistic portrait of kind of life in 1958. But I would suggest to you that that's not the world we live in, right? Just pass them around and send them around. This is, we live in a different society. How many of you guys, like, uh, if you're married or um, whatever, you... um, you, you put on like a, a cocktail dress and mix a martini before your spouse, friend, or partner comes home. Anybody do? Well, wait, I've seen you. <laughs> that might be true. We know Chelsea does it. <laughs> right, Will? Thumbs up. <laughs> no. Um, so we live in a really different world. Here's what I want you to imagine first. If you were doing a photo spread of family of the year now, And remember, the definition of family might have changed radically. Who might be some options? The author of this book is, uh, some of you guys know, Amy Laura Hall, that uh, wrote about this, talked about how insidious it was to get Methodists all over the country to evaluate each other and decide who was a better Methodist and who was a better. And the way it worked is that you had to, like, make nominations. So I could, like, nominate Sarah, but if I did nominate Sarah, it had to go to the, the, the board or whoever leads a Methodist church. Church, and they had to vote on it. And they might have said, ah, we know some secrets about Sarah. It is definitely not Sarah going with Mark and Katrina on that. So you would have known that you got nominated by the Efords, but somehow got squashed by the, by, by the Williamses. Uh, so what an insidious process to begin with. But what might that photo shoot look like? Who would be some possible winners of family of the year now? What might they look like? Gay couple, and they've they've adopted. So it's an attempt to amalgamate 
different versions into one family unit. And it's funny. <laughs> I have a friend who writes, some of you guys he came to Emmaus Way for a while, who writes television. And the first night that show came out, he called me up and said, watch this now, it's funny. Uh, but it, it reminds us that social groupings are, look really different. And these systems that we call families might be really different than what we expect. Blended, gay, straight, all sorts of things, right? What else? What are, you know, what do you think? they have to be a very productive thing. Like Jim was even mentioning last week that in America, like we value performance. You have to produce something, you have to achieve something, so it'd be a high achieving family. Probably every single member of the family. So we definitely have a cult of achievement in our and so if we're if we're if we're elevating what we value, then that would certainly be it. Sorry for those of you who are musicians or painters or social workers or idiots like me who went into ministry and then academia. I mean, the people who missed the message, there's a few of you, Gail and John, some of those got the memo right uh, several years ago, but most of us are dummies. Uh, yes, absolutely. What, what else qualifies as family in our culture now? If, yeah. Well, I would think we would elevate somebody who's powerful. I mean, I think it's Okay, absolutely. Now think counter story. If you want to reject those notions of power and achievement, what might you put forward as the definition of a good family in our culture? Or a good, yeah, absolutely. Well, the failure to launch kind of thing, and then, you know, like the wedding crashers, like just people who just don't seem to have it going on. Absolutely. I'm a little nervous about failure. In, the, in that the family that has the, 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 the dad has the naked room. <laughs> yeah, Mark. <laughs> Get us off that fast. To sort of say with Ben's television analogy or whatever, is a lot of ink has sort of been spilled about Father, Father Knows Best versus The Simpsons, where there's this like, you know, dramatic, not just departure from what is allowable, but, but also this dramatic like reconsideration of how to critique the family. A counter story being that father does not know best necessarily, and in the world of Simpsons, of course, he's <laughs> father gets the whole town in a bubble <laughs> by not knowing so well. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And what do we call family now? What are families in the world that we live in now? Using kind of common definition. What? What would? You know? What are some other? You know? Things that qualifies families. It's often an economic unit. You know, when we go to do a census, we talk about who do you live with, you know, and that's, I mean, we're talking about dwellings, we're talking about people who have purchased property together and now live together, people who choose to rent a domicile together. Like, probably a lot of us know people of faith who are doing co-housing and are living together and changing their economics. I remember showing a documentary 10 or 12 years ago uh, to an audience, Christian audience, about co-housing. And they were uncomfortable with that idea. They thought that this was almost one step toward demonic orgy. You know, nowadays... Not such, a, you know. I mean, we're thinking about ourselves. Some of you think about your friends and roommates, don't you, with a deep familial connection. And some of you have deep, deep disconnection with your biological roots for a variety of reasons. Where you may not think about them quite the same way as family. I ditched somebody who had their hand. Yeah, Daniel. Well, I think that's 
Um, it's interesting with uh, some of the refugee clients I work with, we had a large extended family that was like 16 people, and uh, sort of the matriarch and patriarch were living in different apartments right next to each other. And so it was fascinating with the different government agencies we're going to, seeing how they define their family. Um, where you go to like one place and like, oh, well, they're married, so it's the same family. You go to another and like, they're in different apartments, so they can't be married, and they can't be a family. And so looking at like, kind of how the rules of, of like what the government viewed as marriage was fascinating. We would, we would try to explain, you know, what the situation where people were like, but that's not possible. <laughs> you know, like everything had to be fit into certain um, frequently contradictory uh, boxes. And, you know, we're well aware of this, obviously, that the notion of family has been deeply politicized. <laughs> People care about that definition. I think this is true for maybe Greensboro. I know it was true when I was a seminary in, um, in uh, uh, Massachusetts at one point, is that there were a group of seminarians that were all women living together, and they had to have, like, one guy because the certain number of women constituted socially a brothel, you know. And so they, you know, and I, I think that law still exists around you know, various places. So what constitutes a living group is deeply political in our society. Susan, did you have something? It's like the Methodists and the congregation were choosing. I'm saying nothing against the Methodists, but some big Christian group, they would choose this family. Today, I think they would. And, and I think the only caveat they would probably add is they'd have some huge good thing they've done, like they adopted some child that's, whose family had died in an accident. They choose this family, I think. That's the, the family of the year. Maybe so. Hey, think about this. As we're going forward on this, got another question for you. Is realize that relationality is deeply different in our culture. Right? I mean, what we count and call as friends and family. I mean, these are relation. This is dramatically different. But we're going to have to keep pushing against this vision, that this Pandora's box, really, that Jesus has opened, and, and ask ourselves, what is exciting, what's hopeful, what's possible in the thing that Jesus is describing? And remember, if you kind of have that impulse toward kind of maybe the more conservative side of spiritualizing or, or moralizing, that may not help you so much. And if, you're, if you have kind of the more liberal social position of resistance, uh, those are going to craft their own visions uh, that might be deeply different than what Jesus is pushing us toward. Now here's the second, yeah, Andrew. So, so, so I think part of what perhaps may be confusing is that um, so I guess if you chose what the family of Methodists would have chosen in 58, would have chosen 58, and you'd seen a TV show in the US and I guess 58 around there, it would be the same. What's different now is, I don't know about the Methodists, but if the Southern Baptists then choose this family, and what the media portrays as a great family is, I guess, um, Brad and Angelino, although they're not together anymore, they? and a kid they adopted from Namibia. Like that would probably be the and, and so part of that thing that's making this hard to talk about is those used to be, there used to be consensus, and now there's not consensus. Very much so. In fact, we, we used, to, we talked, used to talk about culture as monolithic and you know inside and outside and now we don't at all we talk about multiple cultures and and that's why it's important for us to read this together because we bring multiple cultures to this one other thing what are some of the what are some of the questions that you might bring 
to a conversation of friends on relationality and kind of this maybe new economy kingdom idea that Jesus is bringing. What are some of the things that kind of push you into this or maybe make you nervous to talk about it? But what, are, what, what do you bring to this conversation that's going to go for the next four or five weeks? Thoughts, questions, concerns, ideas? be interesting to hear that. I want us to kind of take two minutes to hear them aloud. Yeah, Jim. When uh, there was a time when I was teaching ethics in the School of Public Health, and one of the points I would make is that um, a, a person's ethic, you can have sort of a, uh, an idea, you can ascribe to uh, some big name person and their ethic, but a person's ethic really isn't clear until you've seen them make a sacrifice for it. Mm-hmm. And that's really, in my book, really the only teacher of ethics is seeing somebody make a sacrifice that shows how much it means to them and what they're willing to give up for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we need to be looking for in what you're talking about is for this new set of relationships, where are we going to make a sacrifice for this thing, this new thing that Jesus is describing, this new thing that we are going to lay, let lay claim to our lives. And so a way maybe to ask that as a question back to us is what kind of sacrifices are you imagining or what kind of sacrifices are you thinking might be ridiculous, so to speak? I mean, because you might be sorting that out. Uh, other reactions, ideas, things that, that push you when you're... Yes, Chelsea. Before we had Ada, we had a friend that lived with us for several months and um, she just stayed in the bedroom in our house and we shared meals and I remember that time time, but it was also a really hard time because there was something about will I be married and not really having our own space and our own, you know, when you want to fight, you can't fight in front of the roommate, you have to go behind closed doors. And it was just, you know, that sort of feeling imposed upon. And I remember really struggling at that time, feeling like it was the right thing to do to share our space with this person and to have her in our family, but also like having to redefine what our family looked like was really hard. And I think whenever you look at that and kind of push those boundaries, you realize that boundaries have to shift and like, you know, you were saying things have to, um, you have to sacrifice something. So I think for me, it's like, where does that comfort zone, where do you have to pay attention to that comfort zone? You know, am I uncomfortable because this is just hard or am I uncomfortable because it's not the right thing for me to be doing at this time? So that would be one question I yeah, I mean, how permeable are our boundaries? How firm should, I mean, that, that's a really hard question. And, and we all have, are hit with our multiple relationships every day. You probably read something on Facebook today that offended you by a friend who assumed that you thought this was a good idea. So we, we have many more things coming into our lives. Another reaction or two. Yeah, Josh. Yeah, it seems like there's a sort of consistent <clears throat> concern within the scriptures with um, every time someone starts trying to put this box around the family or to try and wrap their arms around it, with uh, always pointing to the person that stands outside of whatever boundary they're trying to draw. And so, okay, well, maybe uh, mothers and sons can sort of be reorganized, but what about orphans? Or, you know, maybe husbands and wives can be reorganized, but what about widows? Um, and so I, I think. I'm always thinking, sort of, when we're talking about drawing these sort of new boundaries or figuring out what type of new ethic 
um, Jesus is bringing into the world to always sort of keep in mind the, the people that are going to fall outside of the boundaries we're drawing and how we can sort of leave ourselves structurally open to those people. Yeah, and Jesus told a great story about that. Any one time the guy came up and you know asked him, who is my neighbor? <laughs> and the, the real reason for that question is, I don't want to reach out to somebody who might not be my neighbor. Who am I not obligated to? So I know for a lot of you guys, you're deciding, what am I going to study? Um, am I going to get married? Am I not going to mar- get married? I'm going to have kids. Am I going to get married and have kids? Am I going to just have kids? Am, um, am I going to pursue this career or that career or um and and that's you know a lot of you are in your 20s or 30s and the good news is that not you get to your 50s you're still thinking the same stuff uh, so there's all kinds of questions that drive this conversation um and so the invitation is to to truly lean in with your questions on this in other words let's let this live in the real questions and let's remember i don't think jesus either was, wrote a pamphlet on what it looks like and it was secretly lost or not. And I'm going to suggest not. Uh, the idea that, that Jesus probably didn't craft a, a, a portrait of exactly what he was talking about. Instead, I think what Jesus imagined is we would do this work together, that we would do it over time, we would do it over history, we would talk about people, and Daniel would say, you've forgotten that immigrants live in our community. And somebody else would say, you've forgotten that not everybody speaks that language in our culture. Uh, or somebody might raise their hand and say, I don't fit your definition of what it means to either be a human being, which is what uh, Reverend Dr. King was talking about, or a person in relationship. And so, again, I think we'll have fun with this. Uh, but the bottom line is what I'm hoping to do is for us to share strategies and stories. And ultimately, I think Amy and Dan are going to push us on the idea of uh, of not only a new relationality, but a new politic on this that as God's people, we need to consider. So I look forward to that. Read uh, kind of our Facebook page or the the weekly post this week, because I may have some clever way for us to tell stories about our origin and heritage next week. So that's where we'll we'll go on this next. But Wade and Dale are going to lead us in our our usual kind of musical move in the liturgy, uh, a time of confession and absolution. And then I think Amy is taking us to the table tonight. So, Thanks, Tim. Uh, Robert Bailey gave me a book last year uh, called Tattoos on the Heart that Greg Boyle had written. He's a priest uh, that works with inner city gangs and, and folks in East L.A. And um, he uh, has worked with them for, for many years, 20 plus years, creating jobs and other industry for folks in um, East L.A. who haven't had uh, many opportunities for work and people are getting out of prison. And one of the things that he said that I thought was really interesting in the book is he said, um, our greatest sin as human beings is that we see some people as worth more, fundamentally worth more than other human beings. And um, he said, you know, one of the things he's realized over the years is that God doesn't see people that way, that God sees dignity in all kinds of people and that he sees um, this change of, of the mountains being made low, the valleys being raised up as something that's really good news. And uh, yet, you know, I think we oftentimes want to see these tremendous boundaries of, of these are good people. They are the people that God loves. These are the bad people that God can't love. And I think it's interesting, the, the idea of family, uh, where family even includes your enemy. 
It's not something I really know how to do. I don't really know how to love my enemies, but I think that's what we're being called to in this. And so this confession is meant to be a corporate confession, uh, all of us together. And uh, it's basically using the image of rain and saying that rain falls on, on the good and the bad alike. And I think that if you're from a place like we are where we've gotten a lot of rain, it might not mean that much. But when you think about the Middle East, or uh, when I lived on the West Coast, where the rain was, was only seasonal and sometimes drought would go on for years, rain is grace and mercy. And so uh, as we sing this one, or as you listen, um, hear it that way.
you look at your absolution, it talks about a, a gift of one, a gift to all. We've talked about this portrait in Revelation of many, many, many people, farther than the eye can see, of people before the throne of God who are basking in His glory and uh, in the grace. And I think that we so oftentimes, again, tell these stories of some in and some out when we don't really know oftentimes how deep the grace of God actually goes. And I think the song reminds us in our absolution of that grace that we can uh, share with each other. You can trip smoke smiling in your worn out shoes Cast away the rhythm of eternity's feud You can grapple with the tongue of hope till it abandons you But you can't deny again You can falter at the well making heroes out of ghosts Stuffing yourself on thankless posts But I have faith in your withering soul Cause you can't deny a gift No, no, you can't deny a gift Gift of one, gift to all The wings to Go from the top again. You can trip smoke smiling. You can trip smoke smiling in your worn out shoes. Cast away the rhythm of eternity's feud. Rabble with its song of hope till it abandons you. But you can't deny it. You can falter at the well, making heroes out of ghosts Stuffing yourself on thankless posts Oh, but I have faith in your withering soul Cause you can't deny a gift No, no, you can't deny a gift Gift of one, gift to all Wings to soar, not to fall. It's a gift of light in the abyss, higher ground above the pit. The choice to live—that is the gift, a gift of one, a gift of one, a gift to all. The wings to soar, not to fall. It's a gift of light in the gift lacks frivolous flair It doesn't sparkle in the sun and requires little care Well, it's one of volume enough to spare Lay down defense 
and we will share Throw down defense and we will share Gifts of one, give to all Wings to soar, not to fall Gift of light in the abyss Higher ground above the pit The choice to live, that is a gift Gift of one, give to all The wings to soar, not to fall Gift of light in the abyss Higher ground above the pit The choice to live, that is a gift One more time Gift of one, a gift to all The wings to soar, not to fall Gift of light in the abyss It's higher ground above the pit The choice to live That is the gift, that is the gift Whoa, whoa, that is the gift Thanks, Wadendale. So when I was in college, my the summer after I graduated, I worked at a day camp, a summer day camp. And uh, the camp I happened to work at, um, my roommate actually got me the job. She was the director of this summer camp. And I had a classroom full of first graders. And they were rising first graders. So I'd already been in school, but still enough uh, spunk in them to drive you crazy. Um, one day, uh, my roommate Abby came in the room to tell me something. And she had, I think she had given, brought me my lunch that I had left on the counter. And so all the kids gathered around and wanted to know, oh, are you and Abby sisters? So one little girl was particularly interested. Are you sisters? Well, no, but you live together. Yes. I was trying to explain the concept of roommates. And so after explaining this for several minutes, the little girl just looked at me and said, wait, who's the mom? <laughs> there was pretty much no uh, way for her to understand a family unit existing where there's a house full of five girls that we live together as roommates um, and it really that's what it really boiled down to her who's the mom who has the authority in this position and that's actually a refrain that will we often say in our house and um, my friends have adopted that when their kids are being particularly ornery wait who's the mom but I want us to look at things like this and questions like this um, as we struggle and and talk and celebrate all things that are family Ben mentioned the family of Modern Family on ABC, and one of my favorite episodes was um, an episode where they try to recreate the Norman Rockwell painting, um, where they're all gathered around the Thanksgiving dinner, of course, chaos ensues. Um, but what's interesting about that picture is, like we said before, even though they're kind of trying to stretch the boundaries of what a family looks like, who's at the table, all of those things, there are still, all of those roles are still filled. This is still picture perfect. At the end, they end up getting a pretty perfect picture, right? And so what we're challenged with tonight and what we're challenged with by this scripture is what is that perfection? And what is that thing that we are trying to recreate? 
it's interesting that a lot of our conversations about family center around the table. We mentioned that Jesus uses some of his last words to talk about restructuring our family notions. But he also uses some of his last words to say, I am thirsty. And so when we think about family and relationality and missionality and what it means to be in that relationship with another, I think we have to get to the point of gathering around the table, of eating together, of seeing who is hungry, who is thirsty, and realizing that as we do that, we are gathered with the family of Christ, the family of believers. And even though we might not want to take a picture with everybody who's gathered around this table, these are our brothers and sisters, and this is who we eat with. And so I invite you to really delve into this series, to delve into the questions that, um, that might, you might struggle with, the questions of authority, of power, of who we don't want to sit next to, all of those things, but to realize that this table that is laid before us, this table is a gift. And I welcome all of you to the table tonight. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table. It's a joyous table. If you took a picture, it probably wouldn't end up very pretty, but it's our table, um, and we, we love to celebrate together. We break bread, saying this is the body of Christ broken for you. We pour wine or juice, saying this is the blood of Christ shed for you. So I invite you to the table tonight. And afterwards, we're going to gather and uh, sing our benediction together. Hey, I'm going to invite you, if you've had communion, to kind of circle back in. I uh, want to sing this uh, hymn, too, which is actually written by one of our favorite folks, an Emmaus Way original, uh, Carl Rook. Uh, so, or otherwise, grab your lyrics, and Wade is going to lead us in hymn, too, as our benediction tonight. Yeah, Carl's combined a couple of uh, different hymn melodies, uh, traditional melodies, and then uh, written some new lyrics that uh, combine some of C.S. Lewis's ideas about new heaven and new earth, and also uh, this idea of our relationships going on and on together. So uh, I'll uh, sing this, and I'm sure you'll catch on with the melodies. There is a road that reaches out into the ocean cold and clear. So I stand here at the end of all washing faith and fear. For I believe in dawning light comes out this road on heaven's side and farther up and farther in goes on this voyage without end. For as it was in the beginning so it is now and shall ever be world without end hallelujah hallelujah amen glory be to god the father glory be to god the son glory be to god the spirit Hallelujah, amen. So I'll go back to the top. There is a road. There is a road that reaches out into the ocean cold and clear. 
Grace of God's mercy love. Amen.